Wednesday at 18.30 UTC. This is VOA News. I'm Tommy McNeil. Israel and Hamas played down chances of an imminent breakthrough in talks with a ceasefire in Gaza. Their comments follow remarks by U.S. President Joe Biden, who said Israel has agreed to pause its offensive during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan if a deal is reached to release some hostages held by the militants. The president's remarks came on the eve of the Michigan primary, where he faces pressure from the state's large Arab-American population over staunch support for Israel's offensive. Biden said his comments reflected his optimism for for a deal, not that all the remaining hurdles had been overcome. A rocket has exploded off the side of a ship traveling through the Red Sea off the coast of Yemen. It is the latest suspected attack to be carried out by Yemen's Houthi rebels. The attack Tuesday night comes as the Houthis continue a series of assaults at sea over Israel's war in Hamas or on Hamas and the Gaza Strip. And as the U.S. and its allies launch airstrikes trying to stop them, the Houthis have not yet claimed the attack off of data, a port they hold. They typically take several hours to claim their assaults. Congressional leaders emerged from an intense Oval meeting with President Joe Biden, speaking optimistically about the prospects for avoiding a partial government shutdown beginning this weekend. However, things are still at a crossroads on assistance for Ukraine and Israel, as the president and others in the meeting urgently warned House Speaker Mike Johnson of the grave consequences of delay. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says those in the meeting told Johnson, get it done. But Johnson emerged from the meeting without mentioning Ukraine. He said the first priority of the country is our border and making it secure. Biden hosted Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell in the office, Oval Office with Republican House Senator, House Speaker Johnson. This is VOA News. President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump have won the Michigan primaries, further solidifying the all-but-certain rematch between the two men. Still, the results are highlighting some of their biggest political vulnerabilities ahead of the November general election. A vigorous, uncommitted campaign organized by activists disillusioned with Biden's handling of the war in Gaza far surpassed the 10,000-vote goal set by organizers. As for Trump, he has now swept the first five states on the Republican primary council. Calendar, but Trump continues to struggle with some influential voter blocs who have favored former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley in previous contests. Rapidly expanding Texas wildfires fueled by surging winds have prompted evacuation orders for several towns and shut down a nuclear facility in the state's rural panhandle. The Texas A&M Forest Service said Tuesday that the largest fire had already burned nearly 400 square miles. It remains 0% contained as of Tuesday. Afternoon. The Smokehouse Creek fire has more than doubled in its size since it sparked on Monday. An evacuation order was issued for Canadian, uh, for Canadian, a town of some 2,000, about 100 miles northeast of Amarillo, as well as other towns. Nuclear plant Pantex says it shut down as a wildfire raged near that facility. The killing of a nursing student in the Georgia has become an issue in the 2024 presidential campaign. The suspect in last week's slaying of Lakin Riley is a Venezuelan man who entered the U.S. illegally and was followed to state to pursue his immigration case. Former President Donald Trump blamed President Joe Biden and his border policies for the Augusta University student's fatal beating. 
He and other Republicans have suggested migrants are committing crimes more often than U.S. citizens, even though the evidence does not back up the claims. Democrats have been more muted. Many express sorrow for Riley's death. Some have accused Trump of exploiting a tragedy and using xenophobic rhetoric for political gain. Two mayoral hopefuls in the Mexican city of Mauricio have been gunned down within hours of each other as experts warned the June 2nd national elections could be the country's most violent on record. The widening control of drug cartels in Mexico has been described as a threat. During the last nationwide election in 2021, about three dozen candidates were killed. Campaigning officially began Friday. The western state has been particularly hard hit by gang turf wars. One watchdog says that it's likely that the biggest elections in history will also suffer the biggest attacks from organized crime. More at VOANews.com. I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. It's a guns butter problem. It's a guns butter trade-off where a lot of countries want to be able to talk a good talk about NATO leadership, but then actually spend the money on butter. Half a million people in Gaza are one step away from famine, according to the UN. Gaza is seeing the worst level of child malnutrition anywhere in the world. And a Palestinian man who dreams of stepping out on the world stage. Today is Wednesday, February 28th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Scott Walterman. Following comments by French President Emmanuel Macron on Monday that Western allies should exclude no options in seeking to avert a Russian victory, including troops on the ground in Ukraine, the United States said no troops will be sent to Ukraine, not even in non-combat roles. Well, that's a sovereign decision that every NATO ally would have to would have to make for themselves. You heard Secretary General Stoltenberg say himself he had no plans or intentions of, of uh, uh, certainly under NATO auspices, of putting troops on the ground. And President Biden has been crystal clear since the beginning of this conflict. There will be no U.S. troops on the ground in a combat role there. The prime ministers of the Czech Republic Hungary, Poland, and Slovakia said the same. Now that NATO has admitted its 32nd member, Sweden, a look at how much NATO has changed. Joining us now to talk about the new NATO is Jesse Driscoll, an associate professor of political science and chair of the Global Leadership Institute at the University of California, San Diego. I think that what we're seeing is a transformation of uh, the European continent, and it's it's being focused uh, not by the EU, but by NATO, right? Well, the EU and NATO obviously nest together. They're mutually reinforcing projects. And, you know, NATO precedes the EU. And the uh, dilemmas of running a consensus organization on security have been studied for many decades. But it's not going anywhere. 
and the demand by countries that were formerly neutral to be part of the security alliance, uh, the security community, whatever you want to call it, um, has grown since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Obviously, Ukraine um, wants to join it, and that's stated in their constitution, and in many ways, that's at the center of the entire bargaining problem with Russia. Russia wants less NATO. Other countries in Eastern and Central Europe want more NATO, and that's... Uh, that's the nub of the dilemma from Russia's perspective. Does it does do you think that um, NATO is taking a bigger role? The European countries in NATO seem to be taking a bigger role now in NATO that the United States has got its own political issues and is having trouble coming to the table. Because the United States has traditionally taken such a forward-leaning role in paying for security architecture investments. Um, it has been able to vote its pocketbook on a lot of issues, and people sometimes grumble, uh, but tend to go along with U.S. leadership in these matters. Um, not coincidentally, when the United States starts making noise about doing less and how European nations need to do more, and I think the numbers suggest that they do, um, this sets off a bit of a scramble within NATO over who's going to pay for what. And as a political scientist, I mean, I tend to see this as just kind of a class of collective action problem. Um, it's only going to get worse in some ways as NATO adds more members. You know, you, you add more people to the table who are arguing about, well, who's going to pay for the bill in this big, beautiful security feast that we're all enjoying. It's a, it's a collective feast. We're all enjoying sitting at the table, but... Um, who's going to actually pay for the wine? Who's going to actually pay for the dessert course? So um, central to Russian strategy, I have to say, their long strategy, now that they realize they're in a long war, and I think they realized it early, uh, is that there are more than 30 NATO countries, and they all have elections, and there's only one Russia, and it doesn't really have elections in the same way. And so they can kind of wait for the grind of European Western domestic politics to play out. And Putin's bet is that the decadent West is going to be incapable of holding itself together. Now, the counter bet within NATO is that democracy works and 30 countries can agree on the fundamentals and that if you look at the material balance of pocketbooks and the latent industrial potential that is on NATO's side here, they have absolutely everything they need to assist Ukraine in balancing against Russia. And um, the problem is that, as we all know, it's not latent industrial capacity that wins wars. It's not GDP that wins wars. It requires military spending of a certain kind. And it's a guns-butter problem. It's a guns-butter trade-off where a lot of countries want to be able to talk a good talk about NATO leadership, but then actually spend the money on butter and not guns because security spending is inherently wasteful. It doesn't go in, doesn't go anywhere. And so everyone wants someone else to do the hard work of supplying Ukraine with weapons to defend itself. And what they really want is for the United States to do it. Um, but as the United States makes noise about how we can't do it forever, things get more intense. So that's Russia's bet is that those distributional consequences are going to be too much strain for the West. And I'll bet that Russia's wrong about that. But of course, that's what I'd say. I'm an American. Jesse Driscoll, an associate professor of political science and chair of the Global Leadership Institute at the University of California, San Diego. Now, in light of that conversation, still no movement, 
almost $60 billion in aid for Ukraine from the United States. There was a meeting at the White House on Tuesday with the president and congressional leaders. We get details on that now from VOA's congressional correspondent, Catherine Gibson. As Ukrainians bury their dead and mark the second anniversary of the Russian invasion, a warning from the president of the United States U.S. lawmakers. I think the consequences of inaction every day in Ukraine are dire. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson saying he will not bring the $95 billion foreign aid package, which also includes $14 billion in aid for Israel and $4.8 billion for Indo-Pacific partners, including Taiwan, to combat Chinese aggression until the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border is secured. The first priority of the country is our border and making sure it's secure. I, I believe the president can take executive authority right now today to change that. A bipartisan agreement to make changes to U.S. immigration law in return for aid to Ukraine fell apart after months of negotiation due to Republican objections. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he called directly on Johnson to consider his role in history. If you don't do the right thing, whatever the immediate politics are, you will regret it. But many congressional Republicans doubt that a new round of U.S. aid to Ukraine will have an impact. Republican Senator Ron Johnson. The reality we have to face is that Vladimir Putin will not lose this war. Democrats do have the option of using a procedural maneuver to bypass Republicans, directly bringing the foreign aid bill up for a vote on the House floor. Democratic Representative Jamie Raskin tells VOA that maneuver has the support to succeed. The discharge petition would have the signatures of a majority of members of Congress saying, get this bill out of committee, put it on the floor, and let's have an up or down vote. House lawmakers come back into session Wednesday, but will immediately have to work on funding the U.S. government past the March 1st and 8th deadlines. Catherine Gibson, VOA News. The U.S. military has been forced to dip into its own funding to cover American training of Ukrainian forces, a, a strategy that could leave the U.S. short on finances in Europe as the Russian war on Ukraine enters its third year. Here's VOA Pentagon correspondent Carla Babb. While Congress has yet to pass a defense budget or take up a House vote on supplemental military aid to Ukraine, the U.S. Army is now footing the bill for its training of Ukrainians. It is an essential mission. We can't turn our backs on them. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Our, our army, our services are going to have to start talking and making some tough decisions that are going to impact the entire force. Army officials tell VOA that if nothing changes, U.S. Army, Europe, and Africa will run out of funding for everything, including support to Ukraine and U.S. operations and exercises with NATO allies at the start of summer. A funding crisis that Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary Sabrina Singh says is raising alarm bells. We are definitely vulnerable. We're unable to modernize. We're unable to change programs. It's like fighting with one arm tied behind our back. As analysts point out, Russia's war against Ukraine still looms large over the European continent. And if you start curtailing training and readiness of U.S. forces in Europe, 
then that is another gift of Vladimir Putin. A gift that Army veteran and former Capitol Hill staffer Brad Bowman says will encourage further aggression from Russia and come at a far higher price than the current budget or foreign aid supplementals. It's, it's providing Ukraine weapons today so we don't have to have Americans giving their lives tomorrow. It's really that simple. Ukraine's foreign minister recently told CNN that Ukraine would not have lost the city of Avdivka, where Kyiv's forces recently withdrew, had Ukraine received all the artillery and munition that was needed to defend it. Do you agree with his assessment? I do. Uh, Adivka was a uh, strategic withdrawal, but that was a withdrawal because of congressional inaction. There is a direct link. This is the fifth straight month that the Pentagon has operated without a full budget, and it has not sent a new round of military aid to Ukraine since late December. Reporting at the Pentagon, I'm Carla Babb, VOA News. other stories from around the world, ministers and international leaders who are meeting in Brazil this week during the Group of 20 Finance Officials Conference put inequality, poverty, and climate change at the top of the agenda. Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva is pushing to give developing nations of the global south a wider platform in G20 meetings while Brazil holds the presidency. Supervisors in San Francisco formally apologized Tuesday to African Americans and their descendants for the city's role in perpetuating racism and discrimination, with several stating that this was just the start of reparations for black residents, not the end. The vote was unanimous. All 11 board members signed on as sponsors of the resolution. An extraordinary flood of the Acre River, which flows between Bolivia and Brazil, left a large part of the city of Coiba submerged, forcing the evacuation of 500 families from their homes. Meanwhile, in the small indigenous village Tutilemonde in La Paz, heavy rains on Monday caused the Guana River to overflow, destroying more than 350 houses. The United Nations Security Council meeting on the protection of civilians in conflict focused on food insecurity in the Gaza Strip on Tuesday. At least 576,000 people in Gaza, one quarter of the population, one step away from famine, with one in six children under two years of age in northern Gaza suffering from acute malnutrition and wasting. Without action, the UN says that widespread famine could be almost inevitable. Israel and Hamas are inching towards a new deal that would freeze some of the roughly 130 hostages held in the Gaza Strip in exchange for a weeks-long pause in the war. U.S. President Joe Biden says a deal could go into effect as early as Monday, ahead of what is seen as an unofficial deadline, the start of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan around March 10th. BOA's International Edition continues. I'm Scott Walterman. The U.S. primary election season turns to the U.S. state of Michigan, 
home to a large Arab-American constituency where Democratic voters were being urged to mark their primary ballots as uncommitted on Tuesday in protest to President Joe Biden's support for Israel's war against Hamas. Biden, a Democrat, and Republican former President Donald Trump were expected to easily win in their separate party primaries, in fact, were declared the winner of the primaries moments after the polls closed. But the vote count for both is being closely watched for signs of wavering support. Michigan is expected to play a decisive role in the head-to-head November 5th U.S. presidential election. It is a battleground state that could swing toward either party. Biden beat Trump in Michigan by just 2.8 percentage points in the 2020 election. At the time of our deadline, the vote totals were not complete. For Afghan journalist Sadi Katarabsai, the path to escaping Taliban rule went through nearly a dozen countries. Now in Canada, he waits to be reunited with his children. From Toronto, Ahmed Farsad Salai has the story narrated by Beishan Hamdard. This feels foreign to Mohammad Sadiq Torabzai, the chill of a Canadian winter far from the journalist's home city of Jalalabad in eastern Afghanistan. But after crossing nearly a dozen countries in two months and trekking through jungles in Panama, memories of the journey still haunt him. For the journalist and father of five, the hope for a better life away from the Taliban rule spurred him on. Working freely for the media in Afghanistan, where he once hosted a politics show, was no longer an option. We could no longer live there because we lost the opportunities. We were not able to feed my children. And at times, Torabze placed his life in the hands of traffickers, like in Guatemala, where he and others were confined for days in one room. The room was for four people, but we were 15 people. 15 people in one room where there was a bathroom inside without a door, only a plastic curtain. We were sitting or lying on the floor. It was the worst two nights of my life. Canada offers benefits that sway many asylum seekers to choose it as their destination instead of its southern neighbor, the United States. For Ahmad Farshad Saleh in Toronto, Canada, Bejan Hamdard, VOA News. And finally... I'm on the road again, how did it come to this? Don't know where I'm going, but I'm looking for eternal bliss. I'm like a rolling stone, I can't stay in one place. When you start to get bitter and you want to get better, you got to change the taste. Palestinian pop singer Bashar Murad hopes to represent Iceland at the Eurovision Song Contest in May and bring a Palestinian voice to the event, which draws millions of television viewers. I also wanted to illustrate uh, how many uh, obstacles, uh, as Palestinians, we have to go through in order to be heard and to be, uh, you know, we're excluded from every mainstream platform.
event, which this year takes place May 7th through the 11th in the Swedish city of Malmo, bills itself as a non-political event and can even disqualify those it thinks is in breach of this rule. However, the global political backdrop is frequently weighed by the audience. The contest will take place amid protests and boycotts over the Gaza war that have affected cultural events across Europe. Iceland will choose its contestant on Saturday with Murad competing in the national final with a song co-written by Inar Stefansson of Icelandic band Atari, known for raising a banner showing Palestinian flags during the 2019 Eurovision. At the core, the song is about not letting imaginary and phys uh, physical borders define us or confine us. And it's about anyone who has a dream, but th the world tells them that it's not realistic for it to happen. And that person feels like all the odds are stacked against them. But uh, in the song, I'm just saying, despite all of this, I'm going for it. Under the rules of the European Broadcasting Union, which organizes the competition, participants are chosen by EBU member broadcasters to represent their countries from across Europe and beyond. There, there is no Palestinian entry because there is no Palestinian member broadcaster of the EBU. Murad, who was born in and lives in Jerusalem, said it was difficult to learn the song in Icelandic, but he saw some similarities to the Arabic language. Uh, it is a difficult language, but it's also beautiful, and um, I uh, I saw I see a lot of similarities also in the Arabic language of like the subtle nu nuances. Um, so yeah, uh, it's been also part of this journey of like immersing myself. Into the culture. His entry, Wild West, tells the story of challenging boundaries and chasing dreams against all the odds. edition on the Voice of America. On behalf of everyone here at VOA, thank you so much for spending your time with us. For pictures, stories, videos, and more, follow VOA News on your favorite social media platform and online at voanews.com. In Washington, I'm Scott Walterman. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The federal government of Somalia has achieved significant progress in its push toward a stable, safe, and prosperous country, according to the United Nations. On the economic front, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank approved in December Somalia's completion point under the Enhanced Heavily Indebted Poor Countries Initiative. That means Somalia reduced its external public debt from $5.3 billion at the end of 2018 to $600 million by the end of last year. 
The completion point was achieved through the implementation of a series of reforms during the past several years. And Somalia can now access new external financing to help accelerate economic growth, improve social conditions, and raise its people out of poverty. Somalia was also admitted into the East African Community, a regional and intergovernmental organization, and the country advanced its constitutional reforms agenda. The United States congratulates Somalia on its recent economic progress, including admission into the East African Community and on attaining the heavily indebted Poor Countries Initiative completion point, said Robert Wood, alternate U.S. Representative for Special Political Affairs at the United Nations. We are hopeful these developments will facilitate more rapid economic growth and opportunity for the people of Somalia. On the political front, we note the Somali parliament recently endorsed procedural guidelines to move forward on a constitutional review process. We strongly support a transparent and inclusive process that will lead to consensus-based reforms. However, the United States is concerned about a recent memorandum of understanding between Ethiopia and the breakaway and internationally unrecognized state of Somaliland that would give landlocked Ethiopia access to the Gulf of Aden. In exchange, Ethiopia would recognize Somaliland as an independent state. The United States is concerned about potentially destabilizing implications of the MOU without the consent of the federal government of Somalia, said Ambassador Wood. The United States joins the AU and other international partners in reiterating our support for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Somalia and urging diplomatic dialogue to de-escalate tensions. It is vital that this issue does not distract from critical state-building challenges that remain in Somalia. The United States commends Somalia on its successes in its fight against the Al-Shabaab terrorist group. The United States is committed to pursuing the designation of individuals and entities in the Al-Shabaab Sanctions Committee, said Ambassador Wood, and we urge member states to join us in this process. That was an editor.